Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. So good day to all you guys hunkered down in your personal bunker spaces. This is the Tomahawk Take Podcast, episode number 14. We don't have my co-editor, Jake Mastriani, here today, so this is Alan Carpenter pinch hitting for him. However, I do have an expanded roster today, as we do have a special guest joining us this week. That is ESPN's Kylie McDaniel. Now, if you're a baseball fan and haven't heard about Kylie, then you really do need to get out more quarantine or no quarantine because he is a prospect scout. He's worked in multiple team front offices, including those of the Atlanta Braves, was with Fangrass for years and knows just about everything you'd ever want to know about prospects, the draft, scouting, player evaluation, all the ways that that gets done. And now he's an author, and we'll get to that a bit later, but he's graciously offered to let us pepper him with questions about all that today. So welcome to our little corner of Braves country. Kylie, it is great to have you here today. Yep, thanks for having me. There's so much you have been into, and it is rare that we get to talk to somebody who's done all this and knows some inside info. And so I admit I've got a lot of questions, but first I want to know a little bit more about you and the journey that got you here in the first place. So how did you get to this specialization of monitoring baseball prospects? Uh, Well, I started uh, as a senior in high school was right when the book Moneyball came out. So it's roughly 15 years from that, which is also sort of ties to the genesis of the book, which we'll get to later. But I was basically just, you know, read the book and I was like, oh, I was wanting to, as a non sort of D1 athlete in any sport, wanted to get into sports. And I was thinking baseball or football. And, you know, how do I how do I go about as like a senior in high school, you know, getting internships and getting the right college degree and the right college and meeting people for somebody that has like essentially no connections. Like not like my dad ran a team or was a scout or was a player or anything like that. So after I read Moneyball, it was like, oh, this sport has a history of letting people that weren't necessarily great at playing it, uh, letting them have something to do with it. And at that point, you know, 99% of scouts were former players, at least, you know, in college or high division one, if not pro. So scouting didn't really seem like an option. And so I was growing up in Tampa, going to college in Orlando at UCF. Uh, and so I would just bother the guy that ran the Tampa office for the New York Yankees, which because George Steinbrenner was alive at the time, basically everything that didn't have to be in New York was based in Tampa. And so I bothered that guy and his secretary for about a year and a half um, (laughs) from the end of high school into college. And eventually he agreed to like meet with me. And then eventually he said, hey, the guy that works beneath me doing all the administrative stuff needs some help. And then I met with that guy and he goes, you know what? I'll have you come in a couple hours a day, a couple days a week throughout the summer when you're home from school. We're not going to pay you, but we'll give you free lunch because that was back when you could do that. And it turned out that guy was Billy Epler, who's now the GM of the Angels. And then after the first year, he got promoted up to New York. And then uh, the other guys I worked for now either became agents. And then my next boss was uh, in Baltimore. I was an intern was Matt Klintak, who now is the GM of the Phillies. Uh, And when I was Mm -hmm. in the Yankees, I also worked under John Coppola, who became the GM of the Braves. So my first like five bosses, three of them got triple promoted up to being GMs one day, which is obviously, you know, kind of insane. Like being a GM, there's 30 of them. There's 100 senators. Um, So the odds are much lower that somebody goes from, you know, state house to actual U.S. senator. And that kind of happened right in front of me. But I also got out of college, like, you know, during the recession and 
like I said, I had no sort of pedigree. I didn't go to Harvard. I don't have an advanced degree. I didn't play or scout. My dad didn't do anything. And everyone in the front office did at least one of those. Most people had multiple of those things. So like all through my 20s, couldn't get a full-time job with the team. I did some writing. Like I said, the recession hit. Had some sales jobs I didn't like, like lived at home for a little while. And then eventually I latched on with the Orioles and then the Pirates after that. And then didn't like how those things played out. Ended up going to ESPN, writing under Keith Law for a year, uh, which helped me a lot. I then got full-time writing jobs with Fox Sports for a year or two, and then Fangrass for a year or two. Uh, and then Coppola, who used to work under, became the GM of the Braves. Uh, so I went there to work with him. When things got ugly there, it was time for me to go. And luckily, Fangraphs was uh, ready and willing, and that was a much better fit for what I wanted to do. So I went back to Fangraphs, and then just a couple months ago, Keith had left ESPN, and that spot opened up, and then I was able to uh, head over there and do that. And then I guess in terms of like what I did for teams, it was, in short, I wanted to do front office stuff because that was all I was qualified to do, knowing how to do Excel and administrative tasks and whatever. And just each individual year, with or without a team, I was like, all right, let's get into scouting. And so they'd sort of teach me how to scout. I get a little bit better. And then I'd learn how to do a little bit international stuff at one job. And then when I went to Pittsburgh, I was doing more analytical stuff. And then I went to the Braves. It was assistant director baseball ops. So I kind of bounced around every department since that's where my experience was. And then toward the end, I uh, transitioned out of the office to being a West Coast cross checker and being based out in Phoenix. Um, so obviously that's like sort of day-to-day scouting, the thing that I never thought I'd be able to do like 10 years later, that was what I was doing for one of the sort of foremost scouting teams in baseball. So it was, it was a really weird journey, <laughs> not going exactly <laughs> the way I thought, or even the way I'd draw it up, but uh, it landed me here, which is, you know, a good place to be. That sounds really good. Now you've got me interested in several things that, that came up through there, but I'm going to start with this. You've got two aspects to this in, in terms of prospect chasing. One is the analytical stuff, and the one's the scouting stuff. And you had to pick up the scouting stuff from somebody. Who who, who did you learn scouting from, and how do you learn scouting? So my, my first summer doing that job with the Yankees working um, for Epler, um, toward the end of the summer, I was, you know, going through all of their old contracts and, like, you know, organizing them alphabetically and, you know, just sort of stuff like that. And they made a point of telling me, like, hey, when you're going through these contracts, like, read them, like, learn stuff. Don't just, like, file them, like, make this a learning experience. And so I was in there for, you know, about three months the whole summer. And, you know, in the last three or four weeks, he was like, all right, you finished this. You learned a lot about contracts. You learned about some of the rules and, you know, administrative stuff behind the scenes. Like, what else do you want to learn how to do? And I was like, well, I want to learn how to scout because I have, you know, no experience, no idea. I've been reading Baseball America. Like, I knew kind of the lingo, but I didn't know, (laughs) had any idea what to do. And Billy was an area scout before he had that job with the Yankees. Um, And he was like, okay, here's what we're going to do. And he pulls up the Yankee scouting system and prints out a report uh, blank. So it's just like the outline of the report. And he goes, go out back because we're in Tampa. So the GCL team was literally outside his window. And he goes, go out back and watch a GCL game and write down what you see on here. And then when you're done, bring it to me and we'll go over it. (laughs) And uh, you could probably guess those first few reports, not very good. uh, But that year in the GCL, it was Elvis Andrews on the Braves Austin Jackson, C.J. Henry, Ivan Nova on the Yankees. There are a couple other like future big leaguers. There's C.J. Henry who didn't make it but was a first-round pick. So there was like you know pretty good talent to judge from and like future big leaguers on the field at the lowest possible level. And so by the end of that summer, after you know doing that for three or four weeks and getting you know tips from Billy, I was able to kind of dial it in a little bit, get an idea of what I was doing. And then each subsequent summer, you know whoever was my boss then, and some of these guys were scouts and then became agents later or you know whatever it was. I'd make a point of going to a game, and I think the best way to learn how to do this stuff, which again is is in the book because we know people ask us this all the time, is sit with someone who knows how to scout who's been doing it for a long time, 
and ask them to just grade each pitch as it comes out of the hand or like just mm. verbalize what they're seeing. Uh, and that's not easy to find, to find a scout that will just sort of say everything they're thinking as they're thinking it. But if you can find that person and you can be respectful of like sort of their time because you're in their office when you're sitting in the stands like that. But if you can find that person, I for years still, still remember um, when I was sitting with one of these guys and Sean Gallagher, who just sort of bounced around as like sort of a waiver claim back at the 40 man type guy. I still remember watching him through a curveball in Florida State League. And one of the one of my bosses, I don't remember which one. But they said that is a 55 curveball. And I still would think about that curveball when I was grading a curveball in the future for like at least 10 years, because I was just like, well, it was a little worse than that one, but not that much worse. It's probably a 50. But you, like, mm. you have to have like this is your true north to judge from. And you can't get that if you're just doing it by yourself. Like You have to have somebody point it out to you, even if it's just one time. Yeah, I'm not anything resembling a scout. I my experience is going to a few minor league games here and there each year. And, and I, you know, I can remember some obvious stuff like a 2009 when I was watching Mississippi Braves up here in Huntsville and I saw Jason Hayward, and Freddie Freeman on the field at the same time, they looked like men among boys. <laughs> By that time, of course, your double A ball, things are obvious, but I, I imagine that once you're down at the uh, GCL league and stuff like that, things are a little more fuzzy, isn't it? it? It's a little harder to grade the differences between some of these guys, as you see, right? Yeah. At, at those early levels, when you can watch AAA or big league BP and someone can say, all right, this guy is trying to hit home runs, you know, like final round of BP, like, you know, you're getting a full effort. We know these are sort of big league caliber balls and bats. We can see what the wind is. We can see how far the ball travels. We kind of know these parts in the jet streams. And this guy can hit the ball, you know, over the 400 sign in center field in like a normal, every all things being equal kind of situation. That's a 60 for raw power. Like that was actually one of the things Billy mm. taught me, which uh, we've ended up putting on Fangraphs because Carson Sestouli, who now works for the Blue Jays, worked for Fangraphs and wanted to learn how to scout. He asked me and I explained to him like, oh, all things being equal. If you just hit a wall scraper out to center field, it's a 400 foot sign. You know, the, the wind is minimal. The ball is correct uh, in terms of, you know, being a game ball. And it's not waterlogged or anything like that. And the guy does sort of a full effort swing and it just scrapes the wall, 400 foot sign in center field, then it's a 60. And then if, you know, strong wind, if you think the wall might be waterlogged, if the wind's blowing in, you know, you would make adjustments. And if the ball just kind of scrapes out to the full side gap, it's a 50. If it just scrapes over down the line, it's like usually 45, depending on how. And then, you know, a pesky, a pesky pole in Fenway, it's super short. Like maybe a 35 raw power could hit one that just barely gets out there. You get some wind behind it. Maybe a 30 raw power guy could hit it out. But mm. you just sort of get that rubric to base it off of. Or if a guy's doing a half effort swing, but, you know, he hit 40 home runs in the big leagues last year, you can probably round up and sort of adjust based on those things. So there's a lot of little things like that. Um, where, you know, grading a curveball, somebody has to tell you. Or you have to, have, if you're in a big league game and it's a curveball that it's his third best pitch, he doesn't throw it that often, it's probably about average uh, or maybe a little bit below. Like, there's a lot of little clues like that you can learn to get better much, much more quickly than you would normally. And that's part of what we try to explain in the book. There's like almost 100 pages where we explain these are the principles to know. And then we also have a companion website that goes with the book uh, that'll be out when it's released that uh will say like hey we, we're talking about you know a 70 curveball here's a video we took when we were behind home plate of Corey Knebel throwing a 70 curveball this is what it looks like to give you an idea it's easier if you're sitting at the game watching it but this video gives you an idea of it needs to look sort of like this to be a 70. so it sounds like that what you've done with this book by the way the book is going to be called future value and it's coming out what uh, may 5th is that correct maybe a little uh it's like it's like first week of april yeah. Okay. So, yeah, uh, actually, I've got I got April. 
I got April 14th in hardcore cover on Amazon, May 5th on Kindle. That's that's where I got that date. And then the end of the month on in audiobook form. I'm going for the Kindle because I I can do this on screen and that way I don't have to hold an actual hardcover book myself. But and, I, and, and in a way, <laughs> I would say, and in a way, it's already released because I think the people that order it through the publisher at uh, triumphbooks.com. They've been getting it for the last week or so. So, ah, yeah, the okay. traditional release date, I, I'm not sure exactly what it is because I've heard a couple different ones. I think it might have gotten moved at one point, but it's, you know, mid-March for some people and it's, you know, mid to late April for some people. Uh, outstanding. This is this is authored between you and Eric Longehagen, Um and it's, it's your first book, right? Oh, uh, first... yeah, correct. It's both both of our first book. The, and, uh, the, the... Oh, well, it's okay. It's, it sounds like it's the amalgamation of all these things that you've learned over these years from these various and sundry places and now put into your Fangraphs effort, your ESPN's effort. And it's how to, how to scout and how to look for prospects, right? Uh, yeah, so the, I guess the, the sort of elevator pitch would be that after Moneyball came out 15 years ago, scouts were worried that they were going to get replaced by analysts and statistics. And the ac- the opposite actually happened, that teams found that, especially at the lower levels of the minors and in the amateur baseball, uh, scouting reports are more predictive than just those surface numbers of on-base percentage and walk rate. Like the things that Billy Bean found in Edge, and the Edge was that he was the only team looking at it. All 30 teams can't look at those and beat scouts doing it. Um, so once every team was aware of what happened in that book, they all adjusted and they needed scouts even more than they did before. Now <laughs> with TrackMan, Hawkeye, StatCast, um, you know, these blast motion uh, bat sensors, Rapsodo, all these different things that give you advanced radar based data and can tell you things that you cannot see with the naked eye, like how this fastball rises. You can see that there's swings and misses. You don't know why you can't measure why as a scout or with your eyes. These things allow you to measure those things. And then um, if you're talking about, you know, Freddie Freeman and Jason Hayward in double A, if they had this technology back then, or if you apply it to, you know, Braden Shoemaker in double A, they have every single pitch thrown in a game that he is in measured every inch of the flight of the ball by every tenth of an inch that it's moving. Uh, and they have the whole season. So the idea of sending a scout there to go watch him for five games and tell you how good he is and nothing else, like that's all they saw. Uh, it's kind of silly to think that you wouldn't want to use that stuff or that the stuff isn't an important uh, supplement to the scouting report. So now teams that are inclined to want to get rid of scouts and replace them with statistical analysts because they think, well, what could the scout possibly tell us? We have all this data. Some teams look at it that way. We mm. wanted to write a book talking about that tension between those two sides. And so the three sort of general sections of the book are uh, A, uh, the how to scout. Um, so if you, if you want to just be a better scout on your couch or going to a game occasionally or going to a high school or college game, or you want to literally work for a team as a scout, it's almost a hundred pages. I think it's three full chapters, uh, about here's how to scout, here's how to do it. And like I said, there's that companion that'll give you the video elements to, uh, give you a visual part of what you're looking at. Cause you can't completely explain it in just words. Uh, the second part is about scouting and strategy, how the markets work, how decisions are made, how departments are run. Uh, and so we do one chapter about the draft. And we actually went so long on the international part. That's two chapters. And it is sort of interspersed, you know, handful of pages about sort of more of the dry strategic examples. Here's what to do. Here's what scouts do. Here's what departments do. Interspersed with a bunch of stories from scouting directors and GMs about I signed this Hall of Famer because I noticed this one thing. That's how I beat everybody else. I was hiding in the bushes and no one knew that we liked this guy. I was sitting in my car in center field watching this high school game so no one knew we liked him. All kinds of stories like that. There's dozens of them between those um, those two sections of guys talking about, you know, Hall of Famers, um, current all-stars, current top prospects, guys like that. 
Uh, and then the, the uh, third section is talking about statistics, going back to, you know, Branch Rickey days, then to the Moneyball days, and now to what we're doing today, where, you know, teams like Houston and Milwaukee feel like they can replace scouts, not completely, but almost completely by analytics, and what sort of numbers they have, what sort of inputs they're using, why they feel that way, and then ultimately how Eric and I feel like where that nice middle area is that makes sense for teams to use and like where we think some teams are going too far, the teams we think are doing the best job. And we have like sort of a team by team breakdown about like what their current mix is like across different departments. Cause there's some teams that are very progressive in the draft and then very traditional when it comes to player development. And so saying that the team is sort of neutral doesn't really describe what they're doing. You need to kind of hear what each department is because within teams, there's a lot of variance. And that's what I want to talk about next, is how teams are handling both sides of this equation. We'll take a quick break and get back to that question in just a minute with ESPN's Kylie McDaniel. Okay, so you got two sides of things going on here. You've got all this analytical data that's piling up for all the minor league players that you already have in the system. and But then there's also the amateur guys that haven't been drafted yet where you don't have all that data and you still got to rely on the scouts. What teams are doing best at each aspect of that right now? There used to not be as much data. Like five, seven years ago when this data was just coming about and the minor leagues. So I started with pitch effects in the big leagues like I think 10, 12 years ago. And then we got mm-hmm. minor league track man for teams only. Still, it's only team only. I want to say about seven years ago. And then it became widespread, I want to say four or five years ago, where every team had all of their affiliates, like every pitch at every minor league game is captured. While that was happening, it also spread to amateur baseball. So there's about oh, 70 okay. Division One colleges that have these track man units, the same ones they have at Mississippi for the Braves or, or wherever. And so in the SEC, I want to say of the 14 teams, like 12 of them have it. And the other two have a different company that has a slightly different product, but essentially measures all the same stuff. Um, And then there's also a handful of like very high end private high schools that have them. And there's a couple, you know, like uh, showcase type facilities that have, you know, 15 fields and they all have TrackMan on there. So like, you know, summer, um, summer legion summer showcase stuff, uh, travel ball, they'll go play on these fields. And as long as, you know, those kids, you know, the pitcher's in sort of good shape and throws once over the summer, as long as one of his five outings is on a unit somewhere, typically all 30 teams will get it in sort of a data sharing agreement. And then during the spring, sometimes, you know, the state championship game in Kansas is played at Kauffman Field. And as long as it's the big league field, all 30 teams will get the data when Riley Pint throws at the Royal Stadium. Because otherwise during the spring, he's not throwing on a unit a track meter to give you data and then pitchers also and hitters even more will give you pre-draft workouts so teams can then get that they have these units on the Cape Cod League they have with Team USA you can get them as early as freshman and sophomore year in high school um, you can get history on these guys but as you may guess the big gap between exit velos or spin rates when they're 25 the gaps are really small when everyone's 15 or 16 and not that strong so right. the signal kind of goes up the, the older they get and also this traditional counting stat, like if you hit 30 home runs with more walks and strikeouts in the SEC, it almost doesn't matter what your exit velos are. Like it'll round you up or down, but the performance means more. Whereas your performance when you're 12 doesn't really mean anything because we're trying to project what you're going to look like at 25. Whereas performing as a 22-year-old in the SEC, you don't have to do that much work to figure out how good they're going to be at 25 because you're pretty close already. All right. So now you've brought this up. This year's draft is going to be a lot different. Obviously, because we don't have a lot of data. We don't have a lot of didn't have a lot of time for these guys to get seen by scouts uh, or see their data, even high school, especially. 
So how's that going to go down? What do you, what do you think uh, teams are going to do? So teams are very confident in their ability to make decisions quickly. Uh, and so this week when we had the Players Association and then when it will be come to their agreement about how, you know, service time and the draft and all these things are going to get worked out in this short season. Uh, teams have been telling Jeff Pass and myself that they're confident enough that they can go draft five rounds right now. And, and some teams want to go 30, 40 rounds um, because it is now it's not just a start on you know February 15th and up north you start April 1st tracking these guys and you just hope that you get enough signal during the spring especially with high school players playing for a competition and some yeah cases. they've been following them for a while mm-hmm. yeah like I I have been following some of these guys since they were sophomores in high school I've seen them at events multiple times a summer for three years uh, you know I have high speed video and you know teams will give us some some of the TrackMan data or sometimes they'll put it up on a board like you know Bobby Witt hit a ball 103 at a showcase when he was a sophomore in high school and we're all just like okay. He's not eligible for a while. We don't need to have the right answer, but we know that guy's near the top. And it turns out he stayed on that trajectory and continued to get there. And then obviously all the colleges with all these track main units around, they played for, what, about a month or so. We already had the summer, the fall, the preseason. Um, there are some guys, like there's, you know, like a senior at East Tennessee State that might go in the third round that many teams have not seen multiple times yet. So they're not in a position to draft him. And if we don't play anymore, then those teams will not be in a position to draft him. Um, but we're probably going to have at least pre-draft workouts or some sort of combine or something between now and then. So the teams are perfectly fine drafting five rounds. And if we get any level of amateur baseball played before the draft, the belief among teams is the commissioner will expand it to 10 rounds. And that sort of makes more sense because the draft in, under this current CBA, everything is based around the top 10 rounds. And then you just sort of use your leftover money in rounds 11 through uh, 40. And so now if you can get 10 rounds, at least it'll look something like the old version of the draft. And then those rounds being lessened while the importance and the length of the schedule and possibly the existence of the lower minor league teams getting eliminated, the draft being maybe 20 rounds going forward actually makes more sense. It's sort of a status quo. So things are just sort of generally moving in that direction. And this is just like an even shorter blip along the way. Did the Players Association kind of sell out the amateur draftees, though, in this agreement? They they deferred a whole bunch of bonus money for them, and the, just the idea that they're cutting back on the rounds, that, that seems a little uh, fishy to me. Is that your read, or is you, you got a different take on that? No, I mean, that's how the negotiations go. Like, the, the union gets to negotiate on behalf of the amateur players and set the terms for the amateur draft because there is draft pick compensation tied to free agency. Uh, the union only mm. represents players on 40-man rosters. And so right. typically they're selling out minor league players and even more selling out the amateur players. And their <laughs> approach to this negotiation was we need to get our union members, so guys on the 40-man roster, we need to get them paid. We need to get them their service time. We need to get them to free agency when they thought they were going to get there. And then if we can get games in, that's great. But we have to solve that first. And the price right. for getting that done is that the owners want to continue to put cost controls and ceilings and hard slotting on all the amateur markets. And then also if there's cash flow issues this year, if there's no games played, they don't want to pay all their bonuses. Now they'd like the bonuses they pay overall to be lower. Anyway, they like yeah. fewer guys signed. They don't need to fill out these rosters. And so that was where the union had to give some stuff up and they're going to give up more stuff in the next negotiation for the CPA at the end of 2021 to cover the 2022 season. There's probably going to be an international draft. There's probably going to be hard slotting on every single pick in the draft. There's probably going to be trading of picks. Uh, They're probably going to slow down bonus growth generally. The draft's probably going to get cut down to 20 rounds, and there's going to be a general outsourcing of player development from the low minors to college. 
Uh, mm. That's like where the direction everything is going. And the fact that that's sort of the positions both sides took MLB trying to move in that direction and the union giving them what they wanted in return for some sort of short-term cash for big leaguers sort of underlines that we're going to continue moving in that direction when they negotiate this again in two years. That's what I was thinking too, is that we're, it, it's a harbinger of what we're going to see in the, in the next uh, negotiations. But in terms of this year though, if they knock it down to five or even if it is 10, 10 rounds, are you going to see a bunch of organizations going out there scattered around the country right after the draft is over over with a bunch of $10,000 checks in their pocket and trying to sign up all these other guys that uh, they think they have as diamonds in the rough that, that, that didn't get drafted. Is that, is that a possibility? I mean, they're going to try, but uh, $20,000 as the, um, uh, as the exempted uh, bonus after the players that aren't drafted, whether it's five or 10 rounds. Okay. Uh, that's what, that's what you give seniors that you expect to sign and release two years later. They get ten twenty thousand dollars And like the guy you get from a junior college that you're trying to keep from going to an SEC school, you might give him 150, 250. That's sort of like a low level prospect that isn't expected to make the big leagues, but there's a chance. So you pay him 250. Uh, and it's, you know, effectively like a sixth, seventh round bonus. You can't give any of those guys that money now. So all of those guys are going to go to college in hopes of getting in those top rounds. And then also, if you're a high school player in the 2020 draft, you can go to school, especially if you're going to be sophomore eligible, go into the 2022 draft and get drafted as a sophomore in college. You will be getting paid your whole bonus that year, which players drafted out of high school in 2022 will still be getting their bonus in 2022. And if you're as good as you think you are, your value is just going to go up. Um, So there's a lot of like weird incentives for players. And then also from the college perspective, there's just going to be more talent um, going to junior colleges and colleges, because like I said, like the whole idea is there's going to be fewer draft picks signed, fewer roster spots, less development going on in the minor leagues for sort of fringe prospects. They're all going to go to college and now the college talent level is going to go way up, but they've already committed to freshmen and seniors and things like that going the way they thought it would go. It's now going a different way. And so a lot of these top schools, I mean, really every college has overcommitted spots and they got to do what, you know, Delta does when they got too many people on a flight. They got to kind of stand there and be like, <laughs> does anybody want to leave? Because that would make it easier. We don't want to kick anybody off, but eventually we're going to have to. Yeah, because they still don't have enough scholarships to go around. So that, what it may end up doing is spreading the talent all the way around the country, I guess, because that's, that's yeah, the ne- only I mean, way the to go. Next year's junior colleges should be the best they've ever been because there's going to be probably 50 high school kids that would have signed in a normal draft, but there's just not enough money to sign them this year. They're probably going to want to go to junior colleges largely to then get paid the next year when they can raise their stock and there'll be a longer draft with more picks. And then also some kids that were going to go to Vanderbilt, sit for a year and then play as a sophomore now might have to sit two years, in which case they're like, well, I might as well go to a junior college. Maybe I can either pick a different four-year college to go to where I will play or I can raise my stock enough that I'll just sign out of junior college next year. So there's probably going to be an extra 100, 150 like real prospects with a chance to make the big leagues that are not in pro ball and not in major colleges. And junior colleges is where they're going to land unless there is a, you know, a new amount of money in independent leagues or if the Japanese NPB league wants to come sign some guys like they signed Carter Stewart last year. Okay, so that leads me to a question about the Braves and the draft. But let's take a quick break and have Kylie come back with an answer on that one.
Okay, now the Braves got this situation that I call kind of top-heavy in terms of prospects, and I was trying to figure out where we where we go with that. Now, and, and the hope was that maybe they could send their scouts all around the country and and snag some of these guys so they could refill the minors a bit and and make up for the loss of the international guys that they were unable to get in the last couple of years here. But it sounds like that may not be able to be done. I was hoping that you were going to tell me, well, the Braves still got the strong scouting staff. They they can go out and get some guys, and maybe not. Huh? <laughs> Doesn't sound like. Well, it. yeah, there's just there's just not enough picks to get that many players in twenty thousand. That gets you fill players that you're gonna, not going to have in two years. It doesn't really get you prospects. I mean, obviously, some teams will get lucky and sign guys that become prospects, but it'll end up being you know less than one per team. It'll be probably ten or fifteen guys total. Um, so yeah, there's just going to be less added to systems. And also like the way things have gone in the past and how the Braves did it in the 2019 draft was they knew they needed 18 year old prospects to put at rookie ball because their international program was hampered in such a way that they didn't have 18 year old prospects in the DSL or in the GCL. Right. So what they did is essentially go below slot on every pick in the top 10 rounds to save money and then go spend whatever it was a half dozen, maybe as many as 10, um, high school over slot guys after the 10th round for, you know, anywhere from 200,000 to 800,000. And now they have sort of close to the sort of correct amount of teenage prospects at the lower level. So there's like different waves of prospects. You can't do that this year. Teams almost always would manipulate it in a certain way, whether it would be the Braves kind of cutting money from the top and giving it to the bottom or what the Mets did or what happened with the Braves when I was there, which was putting all your money in your first three or four picks and then cutting everybody else later. You can't really do that now because you can't transfer money you save in the first five rounds to undrafted players. So you have to basically play it straight. Maybe you want seven or eight players with your money, but you can only get five. So you just got to take them for close to what their slot value is. And maybe you save money on your first pick. You apply it to your second pick or you move money from your third pick to your fifth pick because the guy you want to spend your money on is a guy that's not going to get drafted high because you have like a singular opinion about him. But that's about the only way you can move money around in this format, whereas teams enjoy if they have an outlier opinion, we can take this guy in the 20th round. We don't have to take him in the third round to give him third round money. Now that doesn't matter as much. You got to just kind of take him where you think he should go. And if we end up with hard caps or hard slots in the future, then that's going to continue to to be the case is you're going to have you're not going to be able to move money around you're not going to be able to to manipulate it so much i guess right well yeah the idea would be if you have a guy like Daz cameron who says i want to sign for four million dollars that means he has to go in the first 11 picks or he's you know if you take him at face value he has to go in the first 11 picks or whatever it is or else he has to go to school you can't save money for him and manipulate it so like the astros instead of saving money up top and then giving him that money over slot later and saving later and all these different things they can do they just have to trade all their picks and get up to pick 11 and take them there and give them $4 million. Like that's the only way to do it, which effectively is, you know, obviously how some of the other, um, you know, the, the NFL and NHL and NBA drafts work is you just sort of play it straight up unless you are completely certain that you have a very rare opinion, in which case you can effectively trade down in the same way that a team would get a guy under slot mm-hmm. or wait until their next pick. Um, but that seems to be going away and all things considered, from my perspective, which is, you know, obviously not the most important one, but trading, you know, the Yankees fans tuning into the MLB draft because they heard the Yankees might trade Clint Frazier and Miguel Andahar for the number one pick in the draft. And now they want to watch it. They wouldn't be watching it otherwise. And now big leaguers (laughs) are tied to the draft in a way that brings people in. And so it's more interesting. It's more captivating. You're going to have Jeff Passan doing his Woj impression. Like, you know, you're going to have all of this stuff going on. 
tied to the draft in a way that it like hadn't been as interesting to a casual audience in the past. That, that's awesome. Let me uh, switch. Since I've already about killed your time, Kylie, <laughs> let me go ahead and switch over. Yeah, this, this to, long to talk about real quick. Itself. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> let me let me uh, switch over this real quick uh, on on the Braves. I, I mentioned that I think. And this is reflected in your prospect list too. The the Braves are kind of top heavy right now in terms of prospects. What do they do about that? Had, can you recall a team that has been this kind of top heavy and and not so good in the lower minors? Uh, how do they handle that to try and refill things or balance things out? It, do they need to trade some guys and uh, maybe trade some upper level prospects like a Tuki Toussaint so they could perhaps get a couple of other ones that are lower in the levels? How, how's that work for them and how, how do they get uh, refilled, I guess? Well, they're in a unique situation where they had a rare group of talent that was part of a full like sort of bottom up rebuild where, you know, Soroka, Albies, Acuna, they were on the front line of it. And then the guys in like double A, triple A right now. So, you know, all the way down to, you know, Kyle Muller, Tucker Davidson, Ian Anderson, Christian Pache Waters, Ian Anderson, all these guys. Um, that's all part of sort of one wave of, uh, I mean, obviously I was there, so I can say we. Uh, we yes. were bad <laughs> and we got a bunch of prospects so that we could have a good big league team. I was not there when this happened, but it, you know, generally went about the plan. And when this happens, you know, with like, uh, you know, Kansas City obviously did it and won a World Series and made another one. It's sort of the very traditional version of a rebuild where you, you trade all your good players, you save a bunch of money, you lose a bunch of games, and then you accumulate prospects in all the amateur markets, and then you push them all up. And you might have one or two waves of them, but they're all generally get there around the same time. And then at some point, you flip the switch, you become a contender, and instead of accumulating young players... You're now trying to make a contending team around your young players. And maybe the more fringe guys at AA and AAA or the guys off an A-ball can be used to improve your team. And you sort of shift your focus from collecting young players to trying to make a good team, which can go from adding prospects to subtracting prospects. Now, the Braves did that on top of all of the international indiscretions. And so now they're not bottom filling it even at an average rate because they can't add anybody. And so in the last draft, right. they tried to account for that. In this draft, obviously, they cannot account for it. Um, and in the upcoming international period might get pushed all the way until January. They have half as much money. So they'll add a couple players and where they hadn't added really any in the past. And then eventually they'll be back to normal, adding the full complement of draft picks and international going forward. But at that point, all of these guys we're talking about in double and triple A will have graduated. And if the 2019, 2020 drafts are not very good, then it will be a bottom five farm system. Because you will be uh, losing all of your high-end prospects, losing all of your upper-levels prospects. And if you were to grade the, the Braves farm system from, like, you know, low A and down, it's bottom five. Like, there's some yeah. guys that could be very good. There's some bulk. But it's not, like, standout in that way. Uh, and obviously, having a five-round draft and having half as much international money this year means that's not going to get fixed this year either. So there needs to be some good luck. Now, on the other hand, the Braves do not have the problem currently that the Astros, the Yankees, the Rays, some of these teams with very deep 40-man rosters have, where once a guy hits arbitration and the money might go up and it's sort of a role player and he's eating up a 40-man spot that you don't want to eat up, you then immediately trade that guy for somebody in A-ball that doesn't need to be added to the 40-man roster for a couple of years, and you're in that whole churn trying to trade guys before you're forced to trade them so you can get full value for them to keep your 40-man roster strong. So the Rays obviously do that in a certain way where a guy hits arbitration and they trade him. The Yankees, the Astros, a couple other teams that have full 40-man rosters full of like sort of young players, they do it in a different way that when 
a guy needs to be added to the 40 man in six months, but they think he's just, you know, an up down guy in terms of he'll be in triple A and the big leagues go back and forth. They'll trade him for an almost as good prospect in a ball and hope that that guy turns into somebody that's worth putting on the 40 man roster later, but like avoids the problem of having to give away a good prospect for nothing. The Braves do not have that problem because their big league team is so good. They don't have seven outfielders hanging around because they've got like a bunch of starting quality outfielders and not all. Yeah. They get, yeah. They got about seven of those outfielders hanging around the major leagues. (laughs) Yeah. And and they have, they have a bunch of prospects that are close to being uh, in the big leagues, but not all of them are on the 40 man roster yet. So I think in the next year or so, they will get to the point where their 40 man roster is so tight that if, you know, Kyle Wright or Tukey Tucson gets to a point where it's like, well, he's not going to make the team. He's just going to lose value in triple a, we could probably go sign a 28 year old minor league free agent that in the short term can be just as good as this guy. Let's go flip Tukey for three guys in a ball, fill the lower minors and get rid of our 40 man crunch before we're forced to trade Tukey when he's out of options and all this sort of stuff two years from yeah. now. Now yeah, that's, that's, an extreme, that's, just, mm-hmm. that's an extreme outcome for Tukey. I don't think that's going to happen to him, but if any one of those guys, probably one of them will become a guy that might end up on waivers soon. Then once all these guys get put on the 40 man, a couple of them flounder, they then need to be proactive and they're going to find themselves in that 40 man crunch. And then those sorts of things could be happening as soon as this next off season. That's the kind of thing I'm expecting. And this is the thing that you get with that top heavy kind of a, a farm system is you get some bottlenecks and, and, and you can't get the guys through the, through to the majors because they've been passed up by others. And, and a Tukey's a, sort of like the poster child for that right now. Let's see, Drew Waters. I'm going to pick on him because I, I'm not as high on him as a lot of guys are, and I think you're one of the ones that uh, are very high on him. Tell me where I'm wrong there. I'm concerned about his right-handed hitting. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not ideal. His, uh, his pitch selection is below average, and I've compared him to Starling Marte in that that is, that is the outcome I think Braves fans or sort of people that are bullish on Drew Waters are hoping for, which is the pitch selection isn't great. He's never going to draw that many walks. He has raw power but doesn't hit a lot of home runs currently. But all the tools line up that if he is physically talented enough to overcome those issues by having enough back control to make a lot of contact, making enough contact that the walks don't matter, adjusting his swing plane enough to hit for home runs, uh, and then continuing to show all the raw tools he has now, that's where it could be, like a perennial three to four win guy, sort of uh, multi uh, all-star appearances, maybe gets on an MVP ballot every now and then. Like He could be that level of guy. But for a guy that's in AAA, there's still a lot of ifs and maybes and let's see how this goes. And, you know, he's not a center fielder if he adds another 25 pounds of muscle, which is still on the table. But I think he'll probably stay about the size he is. There's just like a lot of questions, whereas Christian Pache has a lot of questions about himself offensively. But he's so good defensively that if he doesn't improve at all, he's probably like a Kevin Pillar, like low end regular defensive oriented. And if he gets a little bit better, then he could be like a healthy version of uh Kevin Kiermeyer, and there's a chance he could be that five to six one guy like how Carlos Gomez was in his best years or how Byron Buxton was supposed to be or, you know, whoever that guy is. He's got a wider outcome, but all of them are basically him being an everyday player, whereas Drew Waters could come up, hit a buck 50, get sent back down to triple A, come back up again, hit 220, can't quite figure it out. Well, he's too talented to be a fourth outfielder. Some other teams think he might break through. Well, let's just trade him for what we can get. Like that outcome is still out there. And because he doesn't have that outlier slam dunk will be a 70 defender, 70 runner in the big leagues. uh, He, he has like a little, a little um, rockier road trying to get there. Um, But I think his upside is probably higher um, than Pache in terms of like reasonable outcomes. 
Gotcha. Okay, let me take a break real quick, and then we'll come back and wrap this thing up with Kyla McDaniel. Give me your favorite draft day story. I mean, how hectic does it get in in the draft room? It's uh, you'd be surprised. Like there was uh, there was one moment when I was with uh, the Pittsburgh Pirates. So the year I was with them, the year we took uh, Garrett Cole with the first pick, which is a pretty easy one, uh, <laughs> and then took took Josh Bell with the second pick, who everybody thought everybody outside of our room thought was unsignable, and we knew was signable. And so obviously that was like shocking to everyone, but we just saw kind of saw it coming toward us in slow motion. Nice. Um, but once you got past that, our, our, um, our third round pick, which I don't recall all of the names, but there was somebody we had lined up. It was like, you know, we're 15 picks away. We got five guys lined up. We're like, all right, we're going to get one of these guys. And it was like, you're 10 picks away. Everyone's still there. Nine picks away. They took one of our guys. Eight picks away. They took another one. Seventh, sixth. Now they're under fifth, five picks away. We got three guys left, right? We're in a good spot. Then they take another guy. Two picks away, right in front of us. They take another guy, and then there's just one guy left, and we're hoping the team in front of us doesn't oh take him because then there's a huge drop-off to the rest of our board. And <sighs> at this point in the third round, it's like 30 seconds between picks. So, like, now our guys are scrambling. Like, all right, if, <laughs> if our guy gets taken to pick ahead of us, we've got to go way down the board. we got to cut somebody under slot, and we've got about 60 seconds to figure out this deal. Uh, so everybody starts panicking. And that's, like, the scenario where, as a guy that was still new in draft rooms at that point, you realize that during the spring, the guys we were talking, like some of the guys involved in that, like Nick Ahmed, Alex Dickerson, those were the sorts of names that were going in that area. Ultimately, I think mm. Alex Dickerson was the last guy in that group, and that's the guy we took. But in those scenarios, and I've seen this when I was in Baltimore, saw so with the Braves, once you get to the third or fourth round, you think of that during the spring as like, oh, that's a high pick. We're going to have so much you know, track laid out in front of ourselves. We're going to know who's there. We're going to know so much about them. We're going to be so sure of ourselves. And then you get in the room and you line them all up and you're like, all right, uh, the guy next to me, put him in this order. I put him in that order. Like, I'm not sure how I want to line these guys up. And then the names start flying off and you're just like, whatever we decided yesterday, like you're forgetting all of the nuance and all of the looks. And when you get down to it, I could be sitting there as a front office guy that didn't see any players that year. And I'm like, all right, we just took that guy over that guy. We, uh, if you go above the area scout level, we had three looks on that guy during the spring. We had two looks on that guy. If we had one extra look on either of them, they might just be 15 slots apart on the board. Like the margin wow. for error is so small because you have to have every single player, like three, 400 guys for those top couple rounds dialed in so well. And there's so many random things. Like I went to go see this guy. He was hurt. He got rained out the next day where you, you were in position to see all these guys seven, eight times like you want to. But you don't always get to, and you have to just deal with what you have. And you don't, if you knew at the beginning of the spring it's going to come down to these five guys for this pick, then you'd go see them all ten times. But you don't know who's going to be there, what's going to happen. So there's just so many examples that I think from the outside would almost seem like if you heard we saw this guy twice and then we took him in the fourth round, you're like, oh, well, you were underprepared. It's like, no, we did like a really good job considering all of the uh, all of the different challenges that go into making these decisions because you have to be like totally buttoned up on so many players. It's just impossible. And that kind of circles around everything you've been ta- saying all along here, is, which includes the data that you can get from these guys, where it's not just the looks, but it's also the data that's now available that may not have been available five or ten years ago. Yeah. And now, because, and now you can see why some of the more progressive teams would look at that situation and say, well, we've got two years of TrackMan data on Nick Ahmed in Connecticut or Alex Dickerson in Indiana. Seeing him twice doesn't really matter. Like Those two times just kind of confirm what we already knew or tells us something we can't see in the data. But we've seen every game or seen most of the games, um, whereas, you know, back then this was in 2011, I believe, 
Um, we didn't have any of that data uh, or almost yeah. none of it. And you don't get all these guys from college and pre-draft workouts the way you can with high school guys. And so you're like, yeah, we saw Alex Dickerson as probably a junior and senior in high school. We could have some history, but they just changed so drastically that it doesn't, isn't really relevant. I'll bring it back home to the Braves. Are, are they well positioned to be able to take advantage of that stuff in the short draft then? They have adjusted the process they have for doing the draft to lean more on data than it had in the past. And I think now with a shortened amount of draft calendar, less amount of looks you can get from scouts, fewer scouts you can um, sort of have out at games, uh, that they are can lean more on the data that they have more of now. Um, and so, like, if, for instance, a guy you wanted to take at a high, maybe the second round pick this year for the Braves, uh, maybe you only saw him once or twice in that month that you could play. Well, you have data, if it's from, you know, if it's Asa Lacey at an SEC school, you have data from all of his games. And so having data be a bigger part of your operation and be able to take the place of evaluations in places where you don't have them, you need it to take that place now. And the infrastructure has sort of improved in that area to where I think they're better positioned to take advantage. Okay. So last question. Does Keith Law really hate the Braves? Uh, I think it's good for his brand for it to appear that he hates teams, but uh, I've known I've known him for a while, and that that's actually not the case. I think sometimes he can come off online as a slightly different person than he is a person, which is a perfectly reasonable person that I don't think people would even consider getting in a shouting match with. But for some reason, you get on Twitter and people just want to yell at that guy. I mean, they want to yell at me. Too. I had it's to not, ask that. Like yeah, it's not like it's unique to him, but yeah. It, uh, it just happens online. And I'll get it, like, uh, when I put up my uh, my top 30 organization rankings, I got a call from a scouting director from a team, and he was like, hey, I'm, like, reading through, and, like, I'm not going to, you know, quibble with your sort of facts and your ranking and stuff, but I feel like the words you used to describe us were, you know, not quite as glowing as some teams around us that do as good a job as we do. And I went back, and I'm like, all right, let me read my words, and I go, yeah, you're right. I, I think you're actually correct. So, like, I'm looking at the words I used, and I think the ranking was fair, but, like, I think, you know, because you guys are not um, you know, like totally dynamic in that there's been like a regime change. You've drastically changed what you've done. Or your first round pick was fantastic. Like you guys have just been sort of solidly good. Uh, that sometimes seems boring to me. And I like subconsciously want to say like, not you're mediocre, but like the words I'm using make it sound like you're mediocre. And I was like, yeah, that's fair. I'll, I'll, I'll be mindful of that going forward. He was like, thank you for hearing me out. And I was like, that's the most reasonable disagreement I've had about this stuff. <laughs> well, that's just awesome. And I have to admit, there's probably a couple of other hours I could spend here chatting about baseball with you, but we do need to bring this to a close today. Still, that's what Kylie's book is for, is give us the answers to these extra questions we didn't have time to get to today. Future Value is the name of this book by Eric Longenhagen and ESPN's Kylie McDaniel who has been gracious enough to give us his time today. This book is set to be released almost immediately. It's up as a pre-order on Amazon. You can get it in hand shortly, either there or lots of other places. Thanks for joining us today, Kylie, and I hope you can get that grass finished up before it starts raining again. Yeah, Edwin, one more thing I would add. Uh, if you go to my Twitter, KylieMCD, uh, my pinned tweet, it lays out how you can order the book with the uh, discount code FV20 on the directly from the publisher's website. Uh, that rate uh, price will beat Amazon, and I get a little bigger cut from it. And now if you order it quickly enough, you'll get it quicker than Amazon, too. Um, so awesome. if you're inclined, if you're, if you're asking yourself, what's the best way for me to get this book the fastest at the best price and also give Kylie and Eric a little bigger cut, like that's the place to go. All right. Sounds great. So thanks again, and we appreciate you all listening to this uh, episode 14 of the Tomahawk Take Podcast as well. As always, please do check us out. Tomahawk Take Podcast available on iTunes, on Spreaker, on Listen Notes, Podbay.fm, and uh, 
Available from TomahawkTake.com, of course. Y'all stay inside, stay clean, pray for all this to go away soon, and let's get back to some baseball. So long and go Braves. This 2020 edition of the Tomahawk Take Podcast is a production of TomahawkTake.com and Fansided LLC, now a subsidiary of Minute Media Inc. Opinions expressed on the show today are strictly those of the participants, all rights reserved. The music used today comes to you under the auspices of the Creative Commons license, terms of which are available at creativecommons.org slash licenses slash buy slash 4.0 and feature selections by Kevin McLeod entitled Groundwork, Open Those Bright Eyes, The Fig Leaf Rag, Fuzzball Parade, and Amazing Plan. His works are featured at incompetech.filmmusic.io. Thanks for listening today, and may all of your scouting trips result in blue chips.